Hello, I'm Pasco, and this is Talk to Strangers, the podcast where I speak to anonymous strangers, each who represent a different persona, community, or identity. It's all about learning beyond our bubble, testing our assumptions about others, and building empathy through listening. In this episode, I speak to a woman with a hidden disability. I won't give too much away, but I will say that our conversation left me incredibly grateful for what I am able to do and inspired by this stranger's strength and courage. It also gave me an education on a form of disability that we don't often hear much about. So let's dive straight in. Hello. Hey, can you hear me all right? Um, yes, I think so. How are you doing? How's your day been? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Um, not really been doing a lot. <laughs> um, but I think that's the same for everyone, isn't it? Besides work, you just kind of come home and not really do a lot else. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the times, isn't it? <laughs> yes, definitely. How's your day been? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. I've been um, out with my dog Pippin a few times in the park. That's been lovely um and the weather's been kind so um yeah okay right let's um let's get started then so just to kind of keep things yeah fairly easy to start with um tell me something maybe fun that you got up to um sort of during lockdown during this last year uh well the main thing is that we got a puppy <laughs> um wow. so we were basically we um we used to live in Cheltenham and we moved to Bude um two months before we went into lockdown which is in Cornwall mm. um and we decided when we moved to Cornwall that it was the perfect opportunity for us to get a dog because we've always wanted one um we went ahead and we got um I've forgotten what his original name was now but we named him Kylo um and he is a well as far as we're aware he's german shepherd but mixed with goodness knows what else um could be anything we don't know um but he is absolutely wonderful we got him just over four months old um and that was in the, the beginning of december oh that's lovely i bet he's um been a blessing to your life so I want to get into it. Why did you say yes to this conversation? Well, the person who told me about it, um, I have a lot of trust in them and I know that they would never point me in the direction of something that wouldn't benefit me. Um, so, and she, she just said that she feels like I deserve to have my story heard and that my story needs to be out there. So I sort of just decided to go for it and say yes. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. That's all right. <laughs> okay. Um, and so it would be useful for, for me and, and anyone listening to get um, a little bit more context on, on who you are without, you know, giving away your identity, um, you know, keeping anonymous. But um, I'd like to ask you kind of what your, your, your age is, your ethnicity, um, how you identify, um, and maybe a little bit about um, how you would describe your uh, sort of social class, uh, whether you were brought up in the countryside or the city. So just a little, a little bit of background, so we've got a bit more context to work with. Okay. 
Um, I am 27 years old. I'm nearly 28 in a couple of months. Um, I am white. Uh, my dad is from New Zealand and my mum is British, so I'm half Kiwi. Um, I would say that my oh my class, my social class, it's a difficult one because growing up, I would have considered myself working class. Um, it was just my mum and my mum who raised myself and my brother for quite a long time, um, until she met my stepdad. So it was sort of a single mum trying to bring up two kids. Um, and we lived in quite a wealthy area. Um, so we were sort of the least well off compared to my friends. Mm. Um, but then now as a, as an adult, I'd say that I was sort of upper working class, lower, lower middle class, um, which feels nice to say. <laughs> uh, and I, how I identify as, um, I identify as a, uh, uh, as a female, um, female presenting. Um, and I have forgotten what else you asked me. That's pretty much it. And uh, oh, where, where did you grow up? Um, oh. I always think it's kind of, um, it says a lot about someone, um, whether they grew up in the countryside or the city or both, maybe. Um, I grew up in the countryside on the edge of Oxfordshire. Mm. Okay, thank you. That Yeah, that gives us a great kind of context or a picture, like, because um, uh, I think, it, yeah, it, it relates to, to maybe some of the other questions mm. what we're going to dive into. Um so this episode is is called someone with a, a hidden disability, a stranger with a hidden disability. Um, and I don't know what that means. Um, and I wonder whether you can, um, yeah, talk a bit about about what that what that means for you, perhaps. Um, OK, um, it's difficult to define as a whole and. Um, like you said, it's easier. It will be easier for me to define just in terms of what it means for me. I have a couple of different conditions which you wouldn't have any idea that I had. Just looking at me, looking at my uh, my hobbies, that sort of thing, um, you wouldn't know just from speaking to me that I have these conditions that I live with every day that's sort of how I, how I'd initially s summarize it. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into which conditions I have yet or. Yeah. Yeah. I think let's, let's, let's start diving in. Um, okay. Yeah, carry on. Continue. I was diagnosed with something called ME at 14 years old. And this was after months of testing, testing me for all sorts of things under the sun because I was so unwell and nobody could figure out what it was. I was, before before all of this, I was one of the most active, sporty, in, academically involved teenagers that you would come across. I was in all the after-school clubs, very creative. I went ran at an athletics club in my spare time. I 
did sort of cross country competitions at weekends. I was nonstop constantly as a teenager. And then all of a sudden my body just told me, no, you can't, you can't keep doing this. And I just fell really ill. I just had pain in my, in all of my joints and my, especially in my legs. I was exhausted all the time. I would be coming home from school, going to bed, waking up for dinner, going to bed, waking up to sort of wash my face and brush my teeth and then going to sleep for the whole evening. And that was how my weeks, weeks were sort of panning out and nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. I was tested for all sorts of cancers and, you know, just everything you can think of. And it was by process of elimination that they said, well, none of these other tests came up positive, but there's obviously something wrong with you. So you have myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is, you know, condensed down to ME. Um, and what and what what was that moment like? You know, having having that diagnosed, or or maybe what was it like before, um, not knowing, and and then what was that moment of of diagnostic like? It was, it all sorts of emotions, all sorts of feelings, because my mum was there with me battling for a diagnosis. She was by my side throughout the whole thing, and. Um, she worked at the same school that I went to and there are a lot of sort of rumors going around because I was missing a lot of school, a lot of people saying, oh, she's faking it for, for attention. She's not really ill. And a lot of people saying, oh, her mum's faking it for attention and accusing my mum of all sorts of horrible things. And she, we were, she was looking after me and looking after my younger sister and, and my brother, obviously, and just all sorts, all sorts of things were going on. Um, and so we were trying to get this diagnosis as well as battle all this stuff in my school and her and her work life. Um, and from doc, from my GP, who's just absolutely baffled, um, mm. he just couldn't figure it out. And yeah, and so leading up to it, it was getting frustrating. I was starting to doubt myself and think, I'm, have I done this to myself somehow? Or do I? Why do I like deserve this? All this sort of thing. Um, Fourteen, gosh, as if you're not going through enough at that age. And so, at that point, what what did you understand it to be? How was it described to you, or, or how did it feel for you? It's difficult because we have more information now on the illness that we didn't have when I was diagnosed. When I was diagnosed, right. it was actually uh classified differently by the world health organization it's now classified as a neurological disorder which means that whilst it is in the brain it's not psychological um the pet because all everything stems from the brain you know the pain signals are sent from the brain to the rest of the body or you know, I don't know exactly how science works, but all illnesses sort of stem from stem from the brain. That's that's where, that's the information center. But mm. before it was diagnosed as a psychological illness, so a lot of doctors' approaches were go out, get some exercise, cure your depression, see a therapist, and that will cure you. Mm. And I was like, I'm not depressed. I was the healthiest. Uh, fittest teenager you would come across I was constantly moving so there's no way that it's because I'm unfit 
And in that sense, it was infuriating because at the time there wasn't a lot of information. So I had this diagnosis and they say, basically, you feel like you have the flu all the time and that you've run a marathon and that you have the world's worst hangover, but it doesn't wear off. You just have to live with it. And that's it. That, that must have been a horrible thing to, to hear at 14. It was. A, and, you know, my doctor said some people in 18 months come out of it and are perfectly fine. And some people have it for the rest of their lives. And I was, I th- I was so optimistic that I was going to be one of those people who in 18 months I was over it you know, I entering adulthood or my late teenage years, feeling great, I'll have a normal life. But, you know, how many years has it been now? Um, 13 years later, and it's still something that I have to deal with every day. Mm, wow. And so uh, what have you found out since you were 14? What What's changed in terms of your the information that you have or the research that's been done about ME? There's just more, it's just recognised by health professionals now. Not all of them, but most of them, it is recognised, which means that more people are getting diagnosed and more people are getting correct treatment so rather than just things like cognitive behavioral therapy which is a type of a type of therapy you are seeing people getting prescriptions for pain medication that they desperately need and help with from occupational therapy for walking aids and for house modifications that they need in order to just be able to do basic daily tasks so it feels good okay. that people people aren't getting ridiculed for it people aren't being told as much that it's a fake illness and that they're just doing it for attention and that it is legitimate it's a legitimate illness and nobody nobody would choose this life for themselves or for their child nobody mm. nobody would choose that because i had to give up all of my all of my dreams i wanted to go into sport and that's something that i had to give up at 14 everything that i'd been working towards since i was young I just had to stop out of nowhere. Mm. And and how did it affect you through, you know, the rest of your schooling? You know, were you able to attend school in the same way? Did you did you take part in any sport? Like how how was that? I didn't do any sport after that for a long time. Um I was doing school part-time. So I had to drop quite a few of my GCSEs and just not take them. Um, So I did the basic maths, English, science. Um, I did food technology. I had started off doing a PE GCSE, which because of all of the other sport that I'd done in the rest of my school career, my PE teachers then gave me the GCSE sort of based on my past performance. Mm. And what else did I do? Home art. I did art because art was something that I was interested in. I I then sort of moved my focus from sport towards literature and art, which is something that I could do from my sick bed. Um, from your sick bed. Yeah, because a lot of the time I was in bed studying because I didn't have the ability to be downstairs with my family, where at the time there was five of us in a in a small space where there was all sorts of noises and light and 
everything that I had become so sensitive to because it wasn't just a physical pain condition. It really affected my the way I thought as well, my concentration, my sensitivity to light and touch and sound, my just my ability to process information and my memory. It really does sort of affect all parts of you because when you're in pain, that really messes with with your with your thoughts. Um, mm. And so I'd have to do it, do it upstairs in my bedroom by myself because I just couldn't focus. Or unfortunately, I love my family to bits, but being around all of that all the time was, it was just too much. It was so overwhelming. Mm. Um, especially since my sister really got into piano and we were gifted this wonderful, old, beautiful piano, but it was so loud. It if I was napping, she couldn't do it. So it didn't just affect me, it affected the rest of my family and what they could do as well. Mm. So I really I, I really want to get a, a grip or an understanding of how how you experience Emmy. Um like and what that's like for you. So you describe it as a as a pain, and I can I can understand how that would you know, affect you mentally, you know, it's like when you have a, a toothache or something really painful that's ongoing, you know, that, that directly affects your, your mood and, and how you are with others. Yeah. How do you describe it to, to other people? Well, when I was first diagnosed, I was shown a resource called the Spoon Theory, which is a piece of writing written by somebody with me on how she in a flash of inspiration, described what living with Emmy is like to somebody using the resources around her. And it sort of, it goes like this, is that she was sat in a cafeteria at school. I I think it's American. Um, Sat in a cafeteria at school and somebody said, well, why can't you come to this party? You came to the party last week. Why can't you come this week? And she said, well, I only have so much energy for each day and each task and each invite and each social hangout takes up a certain amount of energy. And she grabbed a a handful of spoons and she said, okay, this spoon represents doing your morning sort of hygiene routine, brushing your teeth, Mm. washing your face, getting dressed. The next spoon is eating breakfast. But it's not just the eating breakfast. There's a spoon for preparing breakfast and for cleaning up after breakfast. Now, most people have not an unlimited amount of spoons because everybody goes to sleep at the end of the day, but they have a very decent amount of spoons, whereas somebody with ME only has 10 or 15, which means you have to pick which activity you want to do before you crash. Wow. Okay. That that really, yeah, that really paints a a very vivid picture. That makes sense. Um, So you you almost have to, yeah, be uh, very conscious of of what you're choosing to do because you yeah you have a limited amount of energy so it's really energy based it feels personally for me because every person with it is different everybody experiences different symptoms which is why it's so difficult to explain to people as a as an entire concept um for me it it really it really does go on energy um i have to plan for events so say there's a birthday coming up and somebody wants to go out to a bar pre-covid and post-covid obviously um i know that that day i can't do anything i have to 
sit in the house for most of the day. I can I can eat and I can get dressed and I can get ready, but the likelihood of me being able to go out and having a good night without having to leave early and be in pain you know I, I can't I can't go to work that day if I want to experience the night the night out I have to put all of my energy all of my spoons in one place I can't otherwise I run out mm. and you, you just spoke of this pain when does that come it's sort of always there at the moment it it really is focusing my hips and my knees and I think that's just because of all the walking that I've been doing since I since I moved to the coast and since I got a dog um which is worth it it's nice to be in pain for an actual reason rather than just pain for for no reason and yeah I, pr- I mean and presumably you know all, all of this the pain the lack of freedom that it gives you, the limitations, um, the physicality of it presumably affects you mentally as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have sort of suffered on and off with depression since I was very young. That's due to bullying in primary school. And um, I was first diagnosed with depression when I was eight. Um, Gosh. So I, and, but when I was 14 years old, just before I was, before I was diagnosed, so sort of you looking at 12, 13 years old, I was, I was good. I was better than I'd been in, in years. I was in a really, really good place. And then you're hit with this illness and it sort of, it, it, it pushed me all the way back again, back into that depression, which took it took a long time to come out of, and I'm still not fully out of, but that's because of uh, the other the other health condition that I have, which I haven't even talked about yet, um, which was diagnosed at a later date. So depression right. has been a, a has been a constant part of my life since I was very young. Wow, being di- I can't quite get over that being diagnosed with depression at age eight. Um, I'm kind of curious to ask you next about just staying on ME for now because I understand you have yeah you said there was something else you've been diagnosed with yeah in terms of ME was there anything in your life that you feel like could have triggered I guess this this illness that seemed to come out of nowhere it's definitely not the wrong question it is but it is a difficult question to answer because there is no known one cause of ME currently Mm. But we have our suspicions that I was so, so active that it was sort of my body's way of telling me to slow down because I, I feel like I just ran myself into the ground. I just, mm. I was just doing so much. I was overworking my body. It was doing more than it could handle. And it just said, nope, I'm not doing this anymore. Everything started to, all the symptoms started to show themselves. So I think that I had this bad viral infection or I, I don't know whether it was tonsillitis it was definitely a viral infection of some sort and I just my body just never recovered and it was me pushing my body to its limits whilst it was ill that I believe triggered it but that is not an uh, a definite because we don't know we don't know for certain what triggers Emmy mm. How interesting! Yeah, how interesting. I mean, I'm I'm glad I asked because, well, I just I just think it's worth having a theory about because the only way we're really gonna find out is 
lots of people having theories about it until there's some pattern. Yes. Yes. And presumably there's ME organisations and charities now that have probably sent you various questionnaires and, and they're doing that kind of work. Is that is that right? Are people doing research into ME? There are all sorts of charities who are funding clinical research, who are reaching out to people with ME to ask them about their daily lives and their symptoms. So it's happening. It's just not happening enough. It's to, There's progress, but with the amount of people that have it, it's, there's over 250,000 people in the UK with ME. Wow. Wow, I didn't realise it was so common. It's It really, that that was the figure that I have in my head from 10 years ago, so it's probably more. I mean, I wish I could, I should have done some research really, but um, it's sort of consistently, consistently over that number of people with ME. And one one thing that I feel like I should drop in as well is that this long COVID that people are experiencing of the symptoms of tiredness, fatigue, exhaustion, pain, because it is a whole other level of exhaustion. It's not just feeling tired, it's it's exhaustion to your bones. That is what ME feels like. And if these people don't take care of themselves, don't take the time to rest, it they could very well end up with ME. Mm. Well, it's... Um... That's quite a haunting kind of prospect. I've told I've I've told all my family and friends if you have any symptoms, if you have I mean unfortunately my brother has had covid, he's recovered thankfully. But I said to him you need to stop and you need to stop what you're doing and you need to rest. You cannot keep working through this. You cannot keep straining your body. You have to listen to your body. Don't work through it because I really believe that that's what pushed me to live with this illness 13 years later. You have to let your body rest when it's telling you to rest. Mm. Such such an important lesson. Are there, are there any other lessons that you feel like you've learned from suffering with, with ME over the last nine years, 13 years? Mm. I would say it's definitely taught me, as as cliched as it is, not to judge a book by its cover, mm. not to not to assume things about people. That's definitely a big one. Not to judge somebody without really knowing them, because you really truly never know what's going on under the surface, and this can happen to anybody. Illness does not discriminate. Illness doesn't discriminate. Anything can happen to anybody at any age. And I don't say that as a as a fear-mongering tactic. I don't say that as a wrap yourself in cotton wool and hide yourself away. I say that as take care of yourself. Self-care is so important. And also just really, really appreciate what you can do and what you have. Mm. That's my main mm. lesson is that even though I have this illness and a couple and you know other things going on. I still really, really appreciate what I have, even though it's not as much as what other what other people can do and what other people have. But it's so, but you know, sometimes those people don't really appreciate it, and I don't think they get the most out of it that they can. So that's sort of my main lesson: is that even though I don't necessarily have as much and I can't do as much, everything that I can do and everything that I do have, I really, really appreciate it. Hmm. That's, yeah, a beautiful, beautiful and important lesson. Mm. Okay. Um, thank you for sharing so much. Yeah. Um, 
I I, f- I feel like yeah I I have a much better understanding of ME. Um, is there anything else before we move on from ME that you want to share ab- about that particular experience? I imagine there might be overlaps and we might come back to it, but anything of course. Else? Um, I don't really know. I mean. 13 years worth of life experience trying to think of things off of the top of my head it's quite it's quite difficult because I do one thing that I will say is that one of my big symptoms is something called brain fog that that's a big one for me and for a lot of people that I know I have writer's block I have artist block that stops me from from getting anything done in the form of this fog because my head just feels so heavy all the time that I can't, I can't access my, you know, I can't connect the dots. I can't get inspired and have the same drive because I just can't concentrate. Mm. So I think last, last question on me I have in the, in that same sort of spoon realm, mm-hmm. um, which I'm just really enjoying as a metaphor. <laughs> do you experience the same, um, exhaustion or or tiredness when it comes to mental tasks like uh you know if you were working on your computer for example you had a computer job would you experience that same level of tiredness to more of an extreme than someone who doesn't suffer with me absolutely i i studied at university but towards the end of my degree i really really struggled to finish because i could not sit down and write my dissertation i could not sit down for long periods of time and focus. I couldn't get through all the reading material. I barely scraped through my degree. I just don't think I'd have the mental capacity, concentration, the mental clarity to do a full-time job that, like that. Because, yeah, it just would use far too many spoons. I wouldn't have a life outside of that job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes makes sense. Okay, so you've, yeah, you've um, mentioned uh, uh, another condition, um... Can we, can we talk about that? Yes. Um, do you mind if I just take a drink for a second? Please, yeah, yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by Gig Funding. Gig Funding is a brand new way for you to engage in social change. On our website, you can hire skills that you need or volunteer skills that you have. And all of the money goes to causes that you choose. We like to call it sponsored useful tasks. For more information, go to gigfunding.org. Okay, so um, timeline of events. It was 2012 and I was 19 years old. I had just finished my first year of university and it was absolutely fantastic. And I went home for the summer, as many university students do. And that summer, I'm talking university summers are a lot longer than than normal summers they can sort of start in April and last until September so Mm. I I went home from around the May I think and I was really really ill again I just felt so weak I could feel my heart just constantly going in my chest to the point where I'd look down at my chest and I'd think this looks like a cartoon because I can see my heart, I can see the the way my heart is beating. I can see it in my chest. I mm. was breathless. I was at the point where I couldn't eat or drink anything without throwing up. And 
it got to the stage where I was bedbound and I was crawling across the landing to go to the toilet because I couldn't walk because because I was so weak. And wow. it, it was about a month of this that my mum said, this is enough. I am really, really worried about you. And, um, uh, you know, after going to the GP and after get, getting more tests done, nothing's coming up in blood tests, nothing's coming up in any of the tests that they can do at the GP. Anyway, I, uh, I was so ill that it got to a point where later on my mum admitted to me that she thought that I was going to die. So she phoned the ambulance and they took me in. Oh and God. I had a really, really bad first experience in hospital. I had doctors and nurses just treating me with utter contempt, thinking that I was wasting their time because it was just the ME and that I, I was discharged after a couple of days with no treatment plan. Nobody had gotten to the bottom of, of what was going on. And they just said, still just said to me, it's your ME, go home and get some exercise. And I say, but you don't know what ME is if you're telling me to go home and get some exercise. But there was nothing we could do at that point. So Okay, so let's let's go back. So you were admitted to hospital and then you, yeah, you were uh, almost shamed to, yeah. to say that you there was nothing wrong with you or that you needed to exercise. Mm-hmm. Then, then what happened? You were discharged. Discharged and went home. And I think it was about a week and a half and things were only getting worse. I hadn't eaten anything in days. I was, you know, I think I was drinking through a straw because I couldn't physically lift a glass to drink. I, it, it was at the point where I was, I was, I, I was too weak to even cry from the pain. Like I was too weak to even do that. And my all my whole family were just saying, "We, you need to go back. I knew that this wasn't Miami. I knew that there was something going on. It was just instinctual. And my family were fully behind me. They were sort of my advocates, they, especially my mum. They were fighting for me. Um, and I got taken by ambulance again. So that was lovely for the neighbours. I'm sure they all had a lot to gossip about. Mm. Um, and I very, very luckily stumbled on the right doctor who ordered the right test. It's basically the equivalent of an ultrasound on my heart and went off and I heard all these doctors sort of whispering around, you know, around me and came back and they all sort of were very solemn and they said, well, we figured out what's wrong with you. And I was like, oh, okay, this seems really serious. And they said, you have a heart condition called dilated cardiomyopathy and because this condition has gone undiagnosed for as long as it has you know for the last few months you are also in stage three heart failure oh my word and they said if we hadn't have caught this now you would not have survived the summer So that was the biggest bombshell of my life, sort of blew the Emmy bombshell out of the water, really. Um, Mm. And that was actually one of my first questions. I said, well, has it been this all along? Do I have Emmy? And they said, nope, you still have Emmy. It's, they sort of, one hasn't caused the other. You're just very unfortunate to have two different chronic conditions. I I can't even imagine that moment. So, I mean... So there must have been a, a relief, at least, to know that it was uh, diagnosed, and they knew what it was. But then also 
crushing to know that it was something else that was chronic and very serious. Yes. Uh, at that moment, I was I, I was crying, but I didn't know whether I was crying from happiness or, or fear or sadness because, again, it was that mixture of, of relief that I listened to my gut and I pushed and my family pushed and for answers and we were right. And that that's one of the main lessons for me is that when I have an instinct about something, when I have a gut instinct, I have to follow it because it's right. It's 99% of the time it's correct, especially when it comes to my health. Yeah, so it was it was that relief and also that anger at the way those other doctors had treated me just, just a week and a half before. Just the way that I was treated as a hysterical teenager almost, you know. Um, and then it was also like fear of the unknown, like what, what are the next steps? What do we do now? What are the treatment options? What's my prognosis? Am I going to die? Like I had all these questions you know, how, do, how is this going to affect me for the rest of my life? And it was a lot of information to take in at once. It was, I was told so many different things in those, in those, I think I spent 10 days in hospital and then I was discharged and sort of at home to recover. And it was just a whirlwind of information. Uh, fortunately, I usually had someone with me, my mum, my sister, my brother, my stepdad, my grandparents, a friend, somebody there to help me take the information in. Because mm. if it was just me, I would not have taken in most of that information. Mm. And so what did you learn? What, what? Um, a normal person's heart is sort of between 60 and 80% of your blood gets pumped. Anything below 40% is heart failure. Mine was at 9%. So I really would have died if they hadn't have caught it. Mm. Which was really just terrifying to know that my heart was working at that, that lower percentage, which means that when your heart stops working, it affects how the rest of your body works because if your other organs aren't getting the blood supply, the oxygen supply that they need, they start to fail too. Uh, I lost half a stone in weight in three days just from the amount of fluid that was being expelled from my body <laughs> um, um. Through, through going to the toilet because my heart could suddenly, this medication just almost shocked my heart back into going again. Um, and yes, yeah, so I, I found out that... Um, I was going to have this heart condition for the rest of my life that it, as far as they're aware, they have no idea why, why I got it. But for me, a 19 year old, I was basically a new one for the textbook case mm. because it, they just had never seen it before. My GP was so gutted when he found out what happened that he came to visit me in hospital and he just mm. said, I am so sorry that this has happened and that I didn't catch it. And I said, well, this really sort of like, what, what were the chances? No, nobody knew. It, it's not just, it's not on you. Like it wasn't on him. And I don't hold any grudges against him to this day. It was not, it wasn't his fault. Obviously mm. nothing's anyone's fault. Nothing like nobody gets an illness because somebody caught caused it you know it just he, he just felt so much guilt because he didn't see it and I said that that's really not your fault mm. it, it almost feels like it must be hard to tell what's affecting you whether it's your your heart condition or whether it's the ME but do you get a sense of of what's affecting you when and 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 if so how how does your heart condition affect you at the moment you are correct in that it's 
sometimes almost impossible to distinguish the two mm. because so, so many of the symptoms are so similar. I, with my heart, I will say that if one of the things that I have to do with my heart is I have to weigh myself every day because if my weight has suddenly gone up, chances are I'm retaining fluid again, which means that my medication needs to be adjusted. So that's one thing. The other things that I will say with my heart is I do occasionally get palpitations. So I do occasionally get spells of my heart just suddenly beating really fast for no reason. And I can get more breathless than normal. And sometimes I can feel quite faint, especially if I go from sitting down to standing up. But then there's a lot of other ones which could be heart and could be ME. Um, one of them, which is something that you'd sort of never really consider, is my my body's ability to, to control its temperature. One thing to mention is that a lot of these symptoms could also be medication side effects. Right. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Not only am I... Am I experiencing symptoms from these two different physical illnesses and the ongoing mental illness battle that I have, but also potential side effects of tiredness, stomach pain, joint pain, all, all sorts of things. So it's, it's really difficult to pinpoint. And I mean, with the heart, some of them are a lot more obvious than others, like I've said, but it really is just a guessing game for a lot of the other ones. Wow. What what a minefield. Um I'm yeah, I'm just astounded really. Um and and kind of amazed that you've I don't know, had had that journey really. Um and, and that you've sort of found your, your way of coping, I guess, and, and, and living. Um is Emmy and your heart condition something that you see as permanent is that something that you see that has legs and longevity how what's your relationship in terms of time with your condition with my heart condition I know that that's for life I've I've been told definitively by doctors that that is for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. so I almost went through a bit of a grieving process of the life that I could have had when I found out you know, all these things, and I'll talk about about this a little bit more later, all the things that I had to give up and all the things that I could no longer do or achieve because of my heart condition. So that was almost like loss of loss of future plans. I don't really mm. know how to, it really was like grieving this whole thing, which I never really even had to begin with, but grieving the loss of hope for the future mm. was really, really a tough a a tough thing to go through I still have hope that someday I won't have it anymore but at this point would I even know because I don't know which symptoms are which a lot of the time Mm. and learning to live with that and and learning to live with another so you do you live with your your partner yes yeah and was it hard to meet him like can you tell me more about that relationship does he care for you um in the well in 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 a general sense I guess um but in a direct sense I yeah so I'd had a few drinks and I sort of plucked the courage up and I'd I'd sort of seen him seen him in the crowd before and thought oh he looks quite cute so I'm gonna try and talk to him at some point so yeah we hit it off and we had 
a few, you know, a few dates and we just got on really well. I was with everybody that I've dated or even just been on one or two dates with, I've always been upfront from the beginning about my health conditions because I don't want to, I never wanted to get attached to somebody who I then had to have a big conversation with and then then be freaked out and leave or whatever else. So mm. f- for me, it was always get it out there, say it's not all that I am, but you should know that this is a big part of my life. And if you're in- if you have genuine interest in me, you're it, it's something that you have to consider. It's something that mm. you have to have to know about and something that you have to consider. So uh, on the first date, I told my partner, what my health conditions were and how it affected my life and he was just so so relaxed he was so sort of open and in awe of like you say like you just couldn't really believe the journey that I'd been on and if anything just worried about me he just said you know I want I want the best for you and if this goes somewhere then we'll just cross the bridges of things when we get to them and ever since that point he he has just been the most supportive person that I could have ever asked for he he works full time to support us both mm. i don't have a real income so and unfortunately when two people live together and one of them is disabled and the other person earns a salary of over i think it's 21000 pounds the disabled person's benefits stop Really? What all together? Um, employment support allowance and things like that. Um, the sort of income-based benefits all stop. So they expect that person, whether they're earning twenty three thousand or you know hundred thousand, to support both of those people. And these people are unmarried. They don't even have to be married or have a child together or anything. Wow! And you just so, call them a housemate. <laughs> unfortunately that is fraud <laughs> yeah um, I suppose it is so I, I mean it's something that we we considered uh but this is what I said to him you know he asked me to move in with him and I said this is what's going to happen I'm going to lose 900 pounds a month if we move in together and he said I would rather us live together and me support you financially than us having to live apart but oh which is one of the sweetest things, right? Like that's that's all you could ever want. But for some people, that's not a reality. And some disabled people never live with their partners, even if they're married, because they financially can't. Oh, that's so sad. It's a type of disability poverty that people never really talk about in that the benefits are barely enough to keep a household going in the first place. And then they take it all away, even if you're only with somebody who earns a salary of just over £20,000. And how ridiculous is that? They just, yeah. they, they don't want disabled people over the poverty line. It, it, it benefits, this is just a whole other conversation, but it benefits the government more to keep disabled people below the poverty line. I think just, just that fact, I think, is going to shock a lot of people. I, I didn't know that, that... Um, those benefits would be taken away if you move into a, a household that's earning and earning 
not that much, you know, 20, what, 21,000 no. is, is not a lot to share. Exactly. Um, um, so what, what were some of the things that you had to give up? You talked earlier about having to let go and grieve essentially a life that you could no longer live because of the, the diagnoses. I think it's diagnoses, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, it was a whole range of things from from not being able to drink cranberry juice or grapefruit juice because they affect my blood thinners to the um, very horrible re- realisation that I would not be able to carry children. Oh no. Which is something that has a, obviously a, I mean l- luckily I have a partner that we've we're both on board with alternative methods of conceiving and or adopting a child. Mm. But at the time to be told that I cannot be pregnant emphatically cannot be pregnant. Uh that was really hard to to hear at 19. Mm. And you know just to clarify is that with ME or is that with your heart condition? That's my heart condition. So okay. all, all of these things that I had to give up that I'm talking about right now uh, are the things that the cardiologists told me after I was diagnosed with my heart condition. Okay. So they so they said to me the stress of giving birth the sort of the strain that it would put on your heart you might not survive it and the baby might not survive it. Not only that, but also a lot of the medication I'm on, I would have to come off if I were to get pregnant because they could be harmful to a fetus. So, Mm. which would mean, obviously, I would decline in my health, which then leads to the idea that I might not survive childbirth. Mm. So, you know, it was that that was the very sort of extreme. That was the most extreme thing that I was told. And then the very silly thing of not being able to eat certain foods or drink certain drinks. And then there were all sorts of other things in between, like I'm not allowed to get tattoos. Right. Um, because of my blood blood thinners, I could bleed a lot. And if that leads to an infection, that could be fatal. Mm. Same with piercing. So I, I have my ears pierced because I had them done when I was 11. Uh, but I can't get any anything else done. I've always wanted tattoos, not allowed, not even henna because that also affects the blood. But that that was also something as a nineteen year old, which I didn't think would affect me that much. But it's really hit my sort of like self expression. Gosh, it's it's like your whole life has have you've you've got a limiter on it, haven't you? You know, in terms of your spoons and your distance, you can travel and the things you're able to do now. Exactly. Just even to just be told silly things like what you can and can't eat. And then that that's a daily limit on yourself where, oh, I can't have that. That's frustrating. But then, like you said, right up to I all the traveling that I've ever wanted to do, I can't do now. And the tattoos that I want, I can't do that either. Oh, and also I can't give birth to a child, which is something that a lot of people do take for granted. And whilst I'm very much pro-choice. I would never want some sort of a handmaid's tale kind of world. Um, mm. I do think a lot of people take that for granted. Mm. Uh, the and uh, and it's sort of something that's pushed on us by the media from a very young age is that you know archetypally stereotypically 
women a sort of a very old traditional idea of that women are the, are the caregivers and that they're the ones that have the babies and that's something that's a given but it's not it's not a given for anybody and to grow up thinking someday that I'll be able to have my own child and then realizing that I won't be able to give birth that was really really hard because it's against what society has conditioned me to believe is a right that I have mm. well more than just a right uh a role I guess um yes and whilst I'm very very much in favor of people doing whatever they want regardless of gender it was really hard to hear that you know I found all this out before I found my partner but the idea that I would have to tell somebody that I was dating oh but by the way we can't have I can't give birth to your child how was I ever going to find somebody you know who mm. it was it was really hard thing to process and that's sort of why I think I was single for so long because I just never found somebody who was willing to to you know date me knowing that I had all of these things going on Mm. um and that's not I'm not saying that those people were bad people because they're not everyone has different limits on what they can handle but I I was given no choice like this is my life I you know I find it hard sometimes thinking about all of the stuff that they've had to give up or postpone or whatever just to keep me alive, basically. Mm. <laughs> so let's let's talk more about blessings. What other blessings do you feel like you've gained because of your conditions? Um, oh, what else? I don't I don't really even know. Just like I said, appreciating things a mm. hell of a lot more. Because I, I think I think I've also learned not to plan so much for the future, and to really appreciate my time now. Again, not wanting to sound so cliched, but I I know that I have right now. I don't know what my health is going to be like five years from now. So I want to do everything that I can right now. That you know all the things i want to achieve i'm i'm trying to work towards more imminently rather than planning 10 15 20 years in the future because mm. i feel like some people can get so caught up in planning for for years and years in the future that they don't really take advantage of the things that they can do now mm. it just puts everything into perspective it really does it really just makes you realize what you want out of life what the most important things are and for me i mean I have some goals which I had to change, but I are still achievable. You know, one of them getting a dog. I've always wanted a dog. Um, so that's a big life goal that I managed to tick off last year, which was amazing. Um, finding and living and sort of settling down with a partner. That's another really big one. Um, and we are now actually looking into um, getting embryos frozen and stored, uh, potentially to use with a surrogate. In the future. Oh wow! I think you've got an amazing attitude, outlook, and um, mindset really to it all. Like, I'm sure it hasn't always been like this, and, and no. this clear, and 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 um, don't know why is I don't know. I think you you come across, um, but you've you've clearly been you know through something huge, and um, I just yeah I really admire how strong you are thank you it it really does it means a lot to have a platform like this to to sort of share this on because it it has allowed me to 
give away personal details about myself that I wouldn't necessarily give away if you knew who I was. Mm. It's allowed me to be personal on a level that, you know, I it it takes away the the fear of judgment because i'm not talking i'm not sort of revealing something to a new friend or something like that you know yeah yeah exactly you've just hit on the essence of the podcast <laughs> i love that um for me like one of the points of inspiration with this podcast was my train journey that i frequently took between brighton and london and there was a certain point where I was really getting into talking to strangers um, on the journey because, you know, someone's trapped there for about an hour and you have a kind of set amount of time and, you know, and a lot of people were up for a chat. Um, you, you find out quite quickly whether someone wants to talk or not. Mm. Um, and it's just just incredible, you know, the things that you, you learn about people Um or the things that people are willing to share when you know they don't know you, they that you, you have no reason to have judgment on them, mm. um, and there's just a, a kind of naive curiosity and innocence to the conversation. So, um, what I like to do to to kind of round things up is a, a bit of a quick fire round. Um, okay, you up for that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Right, let's go. What are three things you can't live without? My medication, my phone, and my uh, scrunchie. <laughs> nice. When <laughs> when do you feel most alive? When I'm at uh, at the beach, at the ocean. What's the most adventurous thing you've done in your life? Ride all the roller coasters in Disneyland, even though I have a heart condition. <laughs> that's yeah, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty brave. <laughs> What's inspiring you right now? This this conversation, this podcast. Oh, good. And finally, what's your best piece of advice to give others? Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Listen to your body. Be in tune with what your body needs. If you are unwell, rest. On that vein, actually, there's one other question that I forgot about. Is there is there anything that you would like to say or share with people that might be going through something similar? First of all, you are not alone. And that sounds so cliched, but anybody around you could also be suffering with a hidden disability or, you know, if you don't want to use the term suffering, living with, you know, it, it, you are not alone. And even though it can feel so lonely because you feel like nobody around you understands the pain, physical, mental, emotional that you're going through, there is genuinely light at the end of the tunnel. There is hope because if I can go from having a heart function of 9% to being out of heart failure, in the process of a few years, then I really feel like anybody's health can take a turn for the better. And just to really, really appreciate those those good moments, those moments that you do feel like you can achieve more and don't feel guilty for enjoying those moments. And also just learn to say no to things. Don't run yourself into the ground. 
saying yes to everybody because you're scared of hurting someone's feelings. Learn to say no, learn to do what's best for you and your health because the people who really love you and that really matter will understand and will support you. Mm. Um, one thing, I don't really know where this fits and I don't know if, if it will make it into the podcast or not, but one thing that I will have to say about living with a hidden disability is that sometimes you feel like you have to make yourself look disabled in order to be valid. And how I'll say this is that when I was in a wheelchair, I felt like I could not get up and get out of that wheelchair if I needed to, to stretch my legs or whatever else, because, you know, not everybody in a wheelchair is, is wheelchair bound, but people assume they are. So I would feel so embarrassed and so ashamed if I got up out of my wheelchair in a public place. I'd felt like everyone was judging me. Um, people were saying, oh, she's faking it and that sort of thing. But that is not the case. So just learning to, to try to sh form, a sh form a sort of a shield around yourself from people's ignorant people's judgments because they really don't know what's going on with you. I mean... I have a blue badge for my car, which means that I can park in disabled spaces. And I have a, a radar key, which means that I can use the majority of disabled toilets in the country. However, because most of the time I do not need walking aids like crutches, a walking stick or a wheelchair, when I use these, these things, the disabled space or the disabled toilet, I often feel like I have to put on some sort of a limp in order to be valid so that people mm. won't question me because people do question you. People will come up to you and say, this, this spot is for a disabled person. And I say, I am disabled. And they'll say, you don't look disabled. And I was like, is that my problem? Is, is that not your problem for having a perception of how a disabled person should look? There is no one way that a disabled person, person should look. That's that's a that's a construct that we need to break down in society. Dis disabilities come in all shapes and forms, and some are hidden, and some are not. And that doesn't make any person's disability any less valid because you can't see it. Mm. I think that's just about the most important thing you've said. <laughs> I didn't know where it fit in, but it's something that I really, really wanted to talk about because I, I just the fact that I feel like I have to put on a limp sometimes, so just so that somebody doesn't question me. I mean, I've had, uh, uh, what are they called? Um, the parking enforcement people question me when I put my blue badge in the window, asking me whose blue badge it is, and I said yeah. it's mine, and then they'll really scrutinise it and act like I'm so I've somehow faked it. And I look at them and I say. Yeah, I'm a I'm a 27 year old and I have heart failure. And then suddenly they get embarrassed and they sort of back off. But I shouldn't have to divulge something so personal about my life for somebody to take me seriously for something that I have a right to. I can remember times where I've yeah seen seen people in disabled parking spaces and you know my i guess my intention of looking and judging that person is like oh those places should be saved for someone that needs them not you know i wouldn't ever say anything no um but there's that judgment in my head because i think it's 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 not, I guess it's not known i think there's naivety there mm. people don't know that there are types of disabilities um 
that people have that mean that they do need to have a parking space that's near the building because they have less energy and just because they don't have a wheelchair or crutches doesn't mean that it's not present in the same way that mental health is is finally being recognized um like i i hope that if yeah if there's one thing that people can take away from this conversation it is it is just what you've said i think that's so important it it's sort of i I know that we're sort of wrapping up but it, it, it leads me on to the other thing that i was really thinking of and this this won't be very long but mm. with this pandemic this country and other countries around the world have made allowances for people to work from home and for children to do school from home so at the drop of a hat it really happened so quickly when that is something that disabled people have been fighting for for years, but were told that, no, you won't be able to work from home because it just won't work. It just logistically won't work. No, you can't school from home. You can't sort of video cam into the classroom because that just won't work logistically. Yet as soon as the majority of the healthy population needed that kind of service, it happened almost overnight. It just it just baffles me that that disabled people are often left out of the conversation with regards to inequality. It's we're bringing the focus on on wealth disparity, on racism, on sexism, which are a valid, of extremely valid and important things. You know, social justice that we're working towards, but disabled people is something that is never included in that. When it actually disabled people make up a really big majority, a big, you know, a big section of society. Mm. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a very good point. Well, I hope. I mean, if there's yeah, I guess one positive that then has come out of the pandemic is that that's now hopefully possible for lots of people that are differently abled. Yes, definitely, and it's funny because. Uh, some people, um, actually a lot of people in the chronic illness and just a lot of disabled people, um, we're absolutely fine with the term disabled. We don't say it as derogatory um, and we don't necessarily see the benefit in changing it to something like differently abled. I don't mean to like end the conversation on no, a bad please, note. but pull, pull me up on it. Like you said, you, ed- education... Does- what what does it make you feel when I say differently abled? Because that's sometimes a term that I use, but I'm I'm aware that I'm using it on behalf of other people because I, yeah, to to in my my own view, which is not an experienced view, I haven't ever experienced being disabled. It's, I understand disabled to be kind of closer to like handicapped or something that it is derogative. So I think this is a really important point. There's a misconception around the word disabled that that makes it seem like it's derogatory when it's really not. It's almost like to us just a scientific term. It's just matter of fact. Whereas mm-hmm. to me, something like handicapped or something like differently abled, I feel like is more for the benefit of making able-bodied people feel comfortable mm-hmm. rather than for the benefit of the disabled person because almost every disabled person that I come across is not offended by the word disabled. It is just a matter of fact term. And to me, when people say differently abled, it almost makes the, the able-bodied person just feel more, 
more comforted and feel more politically correct when actually there's no need there's really no need I mean some disabled people might feel differently but for the majority of people that I've spoken to in the disabled community we are absolutely fine with the term disabled so you don't have to worry about that hmm. I'm really glad you pulled me up on that yeah thank you <laughs> that's um... okay it's, again it's not you're not saying something derogatory but I sometimes on a personal level and I don't feel like you were doing this but some other people who have used that term in reference to me feels almost patronizing mm. um in a sense that they will you know often when I was in a wheelchair and my mum was pushing me people would talk to my mum about me as if I wasn't there because they thought that I somehow had something wrong with my brain that I couldn't speak as a human being mm. to to them. So they'd say, oh, is she differently abled or what's what's wrong and that sort of thing. And it, it was like, I'm a human being. I'm, I'm an adult. Like, you can talk to me about it if you have questions. Like, I almost love the innocence of children who stare and point at you if you are in a wheelchair or have crutches because there is no malice and there is no... And most of the time with adults, there's no malice or negative intent. It's just lack of knowledge, like you say. Mm. Um, but children, it's just such a pure fascination more than anything else that if they answer questions, or sorry, if they ask questions, parents will often just sort of hush them up and be like, don't stare, don't stare. And I'm like, no, let them, let them ask questions because that's the only way we'll learn. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for letting me ask you so many questions. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for asking them and thanks for giving me the platform to talk about this. Yeah, of course. How, how did you find the conversation? Really good. Yeah, it was honestly very easy. I think really just being anonymous and talking to you just like you said, like you're a stranger on the train. It really is just so much easier. <laughs> mm, good. I'm glad this uh, this format works. It's, you know, it's still an experiment, really. Um, but um, yeah, that's it. Thank you so much for for chatting with me and, and sharing so much of your your personal story um and and your strength and your wisdom really um Aww. that's that's come out of that and and thanks for helping challenge you know all of our kind of assumptions about disabilities and um yeah just teaching me so much and i'm sure many others well, thank you. And yeah, I hope people do do get something from this in the same way that I have and that you have, because it is it is important. It is it is an important topic that that we should be openly discussing and not ashamed to discuss. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, have a have a lovely evening. Have a good dinner. Um, and thank um, you. good luck with puppyhood. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let me know if you have any any doggy questions. So um to, to answer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Turn off the recorder. Um yeah. switch it off, pop it in the package and and post it back to me. Oh well, thank you for including the postage <laughs> as well. That was a nice surprise. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course. All right, we'll have a lovely evening and so so lovely chatting with you. You too. Thank you for being so receptive and open and yeah, it was it was a really nice conversation. I I got a lot out of it as well, so thank you. Good. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. And there we have it. What an incredible insight into a form of disability I certainly hadn't given enough consideration. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did and that it's given you something to think about or maybe talk about with another. If you did like it, perhaps you can recommend our podcast to a friend 
or maybe leave us a glowing review. We also have Insta if you'd like to find us at Talk to Strangers Podcast. And finally, I want to thank our wonderful team of volunteers who make this podcast possible. Hannah, our producer, Alex, our editor, Vicky, our assistant editor, Emma, our composer, and Andia, our illustrator. And that's it. I've been your host, Pasco. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, folks, don't be a stranger. <laughs>